Welcome to another episode of Adam's Corner. I'm Adam Long, your host, and we have on this episode friend who's near and dear to my heart, Dan Fisher. <laughs> He's got a uh, great Likewise. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I was recently a guest on his show, Let's Talk 10, and it's a really great podcast where he talks about um, 10 things that are meaningful to him, and he gets a, a guest to come on and banter it up with him, and he does such a great job editing and, it, and putting it all together. It's fantastic. And uh, we talked about... Woo! favorite Thanks. golf films actually yeah you do you do you really do it's oh, i appreciate it bro. yeah I was oh listening. no 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 i'm a, i've been a fan of yours for a while now so <laughs> don't 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 get too humble on us now <laughs> well uh in addition to the podcast that he does he is in the film industry as well and i'll let him explain a little bit about exactly what it is he does in the uh the movie industry and he's been a uh been around for a while in that capacity well thanks adam thanks for letting me be on this thing into your corner as it were <laughs> um <yeah. laughs> um since 1986 i've worked in film and television in both uh props as what's called a prop master and as a set dresser uh where i help dress and decorate the sets i've i've worked on uh, a lot of movies you've never heard of uh, but I have worked on some that you might have heard of, including Mississippi Burning, Black Swan, um, American Hustle, uh, Carol, and uh, Men in Black, I think was a pretty big one. Um, but uh, And then also TV shows. I was standby set dresser for the original Jerry Orbach, Law and & Order, and I was prop master on the television show The Americans in its final two seasons. And now uh, I'm currently working as a set dresser on one of the Apple TV shows called Severance. And hopefully if this strike ends soon enough, I'll be back to uh, to actually working on it, which I'd love to do. Oh, terrific. We hope so. We hope so. Yeah, this has been uh, trying times for all in the entertainment industry and yourself mm -hmm. among them. And my heart goes out to all of you guys uh, because you you uh, you enrich our lives so much with your contributions to popular no, American culture. And we, uh, we appreciate it. And so I anyway, appreciate uh, people watching, you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so on this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about five underseen, underseen horror films. Uh, this is, uh, this episode is going to post, um, going to be time to Halloween weekend. So if you're listening to it, that's when it's going to be up. Uh, but we're going to be talking about five horror films that we feel like more people should have seen. And since you are the guest now, we don't know each other's film picks. We have no idea. We nope. have just, uh, um, you know, we're just going to take a stab in the dark on this. And if we happen to pick the same one, we've got a few alternate titles so that we don't, uh, you know, talk too much about the same title. So we, we've got our bases covered here, ladies and gents, as it were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so anyway, well, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, when you were on my show and we each had 10 cult movies to come up with, we had no overlap whatsoever. I mean, yes. some of that is because your mu movie viewing has just been so voluminous that honestly, <laughs> I think I had only seen something like seven out of the 10 that you'd seen. And I, I've seen a lot of movies, but I, I have nothing on you. 
<laughs> well, you're too kind. You're too kind. And I, uh, I, I feel there are still blind spots in my movie going that are oh, would sure. be embarrassing if people knew about them. I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll go on and say I have yet to see The Sound of Music, which is uh, pretty amazing. I know mm. it's one that I always meant to see and just ne- it never happened for whatever reason. It's still and, there. Uh, it's waiting for you. Uh-huh. Yep. Julie Andrews is calling your name. I'm yeah, I'm very familiar with it and I know all about it, but it's just one that I never sat down to catch up with. And so I'm constantly catching up with little blind spots like that. But but there are a lot of obscure films that do litter my the recesses of my mind, as it were, uh, that I have seen. So (laughs) and we're going to talk about a few of those. Yeah. So since you are the guest, we will let you go first with this. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, I'm when I made this list, what kind of surprised me in my first impulse decisions that none of them predate the year 1971, which is kind of shocking for me because I grew up watching monster movies on Saturday afternoons and, and, and Saturday night after, after the 11 o'clock news throughout my childhood. And so, you know, Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi, I mean, and all the Abbott and Costello meets the whatever monsters, that's that was just such a, a an urgent part of my my growing up and so vital to to what my imagination would uh, would would turn into. But, you know, I did think about your instruction of underseen or perhaps underrated monster or horror movies and i thought well you know i've the ones i remember the most the ones that of of those boris karloff ones that mean the most to me like bride of frankenstein uh, or even something like white zombie with bella lugosi those were all i think pretty well seen and 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 pretty big hits and still i think get mentioned a lot by certainly monster fans uh, which I do consider myself still a monster fan. So I thought, well, gosh, you know, what What about the ones that I've loved that people just don't really seem to talk about that much? And so the first one I have starts from the year 1971. And this was a movie that I saw uh, the first time on CBS's Late, late, night, at the, late night at the Movies. Uh, and especially on Friday nights uh, at 11.30, this was back in 1971 when the only late night talk show was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, um, at least on the networks. Otherwise, CBS would just play movies. And Friday nights seemed to be specializing in monster movies or horror movies, scary movies, or sometimes science fiction like A Planet of the Apes. This is a very long intro to uh, to me telling you that I fell in love with a movie called The Abominable Dr. Fibes, starring Vincent Price. Came out in 1971. I probably saw it 73, 74. I think it was part of a package of British films, uh, British horror movies. I don't know if it was part of the, I don't think it was part of the Hammer uh, series. And I'm sure one of your listeners uh, is probably screaming at their, their phones or their screens right now telling me that it's not. But it is a Vincent Price movie specializing in his or Vincent Price movie where his specialty of playing a mad scientist just came in full flourish. Dr. Fibes 
was at one time an ordinary doctor of something or other. I don't know what, but his wife, uh, he and his wife had gotten into a car crash, which left him horribly scarred while his wife died. And the they brought his wife to nine different doctors to try to revive her. They couldn't. She died. And so Dr. Fibes blames the doctors for her death. And he wears a what would guess I guess be described as a Vincent Price mask. He looks like Vincent Price for most of the movie. But yes, his face is this terrible skull-like creature creation where you know most of the flesh is stripped off and revealing the skull so uh in his laboratory which also has a complete uh robot mini orchestra uh to which he accompanies on pipe organ in his laboratory he he devises nine different ways to take revenge on these doctors and take their lives and they're all tied to of all things the biblical plagues so that one of the doctors dies from locusts, another from rats. And believe it or not, there's a way Dr. Fives figures out to kill a doctor with frogs. And it is scary to some extent. It's also just very, very funny. And it might have been the first movie I remember that just it, it occurred to me like you can laugh and kind of be scared at the same time. And it's great. It's a great feeling to have that. And watching it again, it's available for free in a really, really good print and sound on YouTube of all places. Absolutely free. The Abominable Dr. Fives. I recommend it. And the art direction and the cinematography are really top notch. I have the feeling that the filmmakers looked a little bit at like how Stanley Kubrick did things in terms of composition and, and, and even pacing. And, and it's like, let's on this very limited monster movie budget, let's try to make it like as if Stanley Kubrick had done this. And I think it pays off in spades. It's, it's one that I, I can't believe isn't talked about nearly as much as, as a lot of the other more accepted classics. So that's my pick. Very good. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of The Imbombable Dr. Fives as well, and uh, you do a great job of uh, selling it, as it were. What do you think about the sequel? I'm just curious about that. Uh, Dr. Fives rises again. I'm always curious about uh, uh, when there's a sec second helping of something and you're such a fan of the first. I always like to know what, what did you think of that? Well, I think as a kid, maybe this was another lesson I learned is that um, I liked it but not nearly as much as the first. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of carried through most of my life. I, I really don't, as an adult now, I really don't rush out to see sequels. You know, I'm really not part of that thing of like, oh, I loved it so much. I need to see these characters again and again and again with similar storylines just sort of regurgitated. I always want to be surprised when I go to the movies. Uh, and, and it is possible to make a sequel that is at least as good, sometimes superior. I mean, you know, Aliens, The Godfather Part Two. There, it can be done, and I don't think uh, Doctor Fives Rises Again is a bad movie. It just doesn't have that inspiration of the first one. I mean, the biblical plagues. You know, how are you going to top that? Yeah, and I, I, I don't think they really did. But listen, it's always fun to see Vincent Price do anything. I loved seeing him on Hollywood Squares. Mm -hmm. You know, so. 
and and of course when he he was in Edward Scissorhands I think that was his final performance so it's good uh the other one but the uh, the first one will always just have a place in my heart Oh yeah, yeah. It it is a great film, and and it ends in such a way that you don't think there's a sequel possible, actually. But they find a way, as they do in these sorts of well, things. That, <laughs> yeah, that happens too, right? Where where nobody thinks about sequel until suddenly it makes a lot of money, and then <laughs> oh, we we think that guy died. He didn't die. I mean, listen, I was a huge Planet of the Apes fan, still am, really. But as a kid, like that was my. That was that was one of my franchise exceptions. And honestly, I don't I can't even tell you if I knew at that time that with each sequel to Planet of the Apes, it got worse and worse and worse because they just kept cutting back on the budget. So yeah. by the end, yeah. most of them were wearing ape masks. They didn't even bother with the ape uh, makeup uh, mm-hmm. for that series. But uh, I had a point to this. I, I don't quite remember what it is. Oh, I know what it is too. I, you know, it's we were talking about how well, you know, how could you anticipate a sequel? And at the end of the second Planet of the Apes movie, beneath the Planet of the Apes, they blow up the planet with an atomic bomb. They <laughs> obliterate it. So how are they gonna sequelize that? And of course, it's like, oh, you know, Cornelius and Zira at the last minute found Taylor's spaceship, somehow had all the ability to rig it up and make it take off just before the planet blows up, just like Superman did with Krypton. It's just, you know, yeah, folks. Okay. All right. You know, the the days of Rod Serling and sort of deep thoughts with the first one were long gone by numbers three, four, and five. (laughs) It's getting more and more for the 10-year-olds out there, which I was at least at that time. (laughs) Well, that brings me uh, to another horror film where uh, mis- uh misery of course rob reiner's misery where where annie wilkes uh, has that conversation about she had gone to a uh, a cliffhanger and she saw the guy go over the, <laughs> the cliff but no uh-huh. he didn't go over the cliff <laughs> yeah he held on to a branch like like beetle bailey does in those cartoons <laughs> I know what I saw. She goes into that long speech. And she goes, he didn't get out of the cock-a-duty car. The cock-a-duty car. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but there's a there's a good point that she makes in the film. Nutty as her character may be, she does make a valid point about the, how they, yeah, uh, they they trick you. So yeah. Anyway, well, I will start. I will go to my number five. Um, and this um, is a film from 1981, and we all have, you know, a story, I guess, especially films of our youth that, you know, uh, also help to cement our feelings about these films. And this one is one of those. Dead and Buried is a uh, 1981 film from uh, written by uh, Dan O'Bannon, who had just two years earlier pinned or co-pinned the script for Alien, the original Alien. And this was uh, this was actually billed as uh, from the co-creator of Alien, a a new kind of horror or something of that nature. And anyway, uh, a friend of mine that uh, was in my tenth grade uh, high school class, I, I was in a music appreciation class. We became really really good friends, and he would come over on Fridays uh, and just hang out sometimes while my mother was working, and it was just us at the house. My sisters were usually with friends or whatever. And so there was a a video store that we could walk on the train tracks to get to from my house. And I can just remember us taking that long trek on foot on the uh, the train tracks to get to the video store. And 
we would go in there. So he recommended I, I, we were just browsing the shelves as we would do at that age. And I remember him recommending that I get Dead and Buried. He had seen it on HBO and he said, this is, I think you'll really enjoy this. And essentially it's James Farentino and Melody Anderson, who had previously the year before she had made a little bit of a splash in Flash Gordon, the 1980 Flash Gordon. She's a, uh, the, uh, the female uh, uh, lead in that film. And um, so Farentino is who is who is who is Flash in that? Just I'm going to distract you a second. That was what what was the name of the character? He was Sam something, Sam right? Sam J. Jones. Yes, Sam J. Jones. Yeah, okay. he was a former football player, and his dialogue was completely dubbed for the film. <laughs> so I mainly remember the the Queen song, and I remember the pinball machine. Yes, that Flash is... Gordon is alive. When you like put in a quarter, I think. Well, when they anyway. brought him, they brought Sam J. Jones in for a cameo in Ted because they were such huge fans of Flash Gordon. That was brilliant. Oh, that's right. I, I remember I was in the theater and I was about to fall out of the chair. I was laughing so <laughs> hard. And I was the only person, because these were all kids who had come to see this movie on a Friday night. They didn't get it. They didn't get the jokes went right over their heads. And I was just laughing, laughing hysterically. And so it... uh <laughs> uh, I, but you know i was proud that i got that joke my kids got it of course because they had seen flash gordon but anyway uh but melody anderson and yes. uh, uh she had previously the year before been in uh flash gordon as the female lead as i said and she's in dead and buried she plays james farentino's wife in this film and he's a sheriff he's investigating all these uh murders that are occurring and but then the corpses keep coming back to life and he can't figure out why they keep coming back to life or how it's happening and uh robert england is one of the people uh, uh, the, it's a small potter's bluff i think is the name of the town it's up in new england and anyway uh you have the uh the kindly old um uh funeral director it's played by jack albertson i think he was dying from cancer when he made the film uh and he died before it came out so he he i think he had stomach oh. cancer at the time he's there's something he was sinister. so great yeah he was he was he really was and he's so sinister there's something sinister about him but you can't quite put hmm. your finger on it and then when the film gets to where it's going it's a jaw dropper folks and the uh, makeup is done by stan winston there are some incredibly oh. gruesome murders in this film that are also very realistic and it's uh it's directed by Gary Sherman who would who had done a horror film in 1972 called Raw Meat and he would later on do the Wanted Dead or Alive film with um Rutger Hauer and then he did uh Poltergeist 3 the ill-fated Poltergeist 3 he was it was actually he was uh, called in to finish that well he had directed the film and then um uh the um uh Heather O'Rourke had passed away during the middle and he had to come back in and finish it because they didn't want to just write it off as a tax write-off and so he he was kind of you know had the uh that was an unenviable task that he later on had to deal with but uh dead and buried i think is his, is the jewel in his crown it's a terrific film with a great twist ending that you will not see coming folks and uh it's i just highly recommend dead and buried for anybody who's a serious horror fan and if you haven't seen it, uh, it's well worth your time seeking out. And this friend of mine 
I never forgot it. And he passed away. He was killed in an unfortunate accident uh, about nine years ago. And so he's long gone. But every time I watch it dead and buried, I think of my friend from the 10th grade and I think of him fondly and how he introduced me to this film. So. Well, Dan O'Bannon is just so talented, you know, and, and, uh, uh, hey, curious. So where does this take place again? Do you uh, know? It's, it's called Potter's Bluff is the name of the town. I think it's a Potter's Bluff. town. I th- I want to say it's New New Hampshire, but uh, oh, okay. I can't say for sure. But I know it's in a New England town. Uh, right. And I know that for for a fact. Uh, but well, that's but I- that's always part of you know any good horror movie for me is about the atmosphere. And there are certain places, right? Like yeah. New England. You know, of course, you think Stephen King for that that but you know certainly others as well oh yeah and then you also have like the bayou sort of swampy kind of environment you know Mm. Uh, and then sometimes it's just southern california because you know it's it's convenient to shoot there but uh you know southern california does have its own vibe and and certainly that carefree kids you know frolicking on the beach or uh or you know would-be hollywood starlets getting you know getting you know, chainsawed or eaten by sharks or whatever, you know, that certainly lends a certain amount of uh, contrast to, uh, to the, to the sunny skies of, of, so, you know, I think environment counts for a lot, you know, where, where a movie takes place uh, can make a place scary or not, or how you, how you make it scary or not. That's a skill of a, of a good director. Yeah, I would tend to agree. That's, that's a, that's a great way to a uh, great summation as, as it were, but yeah. So uh, yeah. I guess it's time for your number four. I'm curious. I'm excited. Well, to hear I guess it next. is. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going up toward. You know, I started at the oldest, and I'm, I'm moving slowly up, up the uh, through the years. I, I, I jump a whole year here from nineteen previous 1971 to 1972, and you know, spoiler alert: three of my scary films are on. How do we put it? Underrated horror movies, underseen. Um, all three, three of my five are from the 1970s, you know, partly because monsters were very important to me. Then I had the Aurora models in my room, you know, all of them, the glow in the dark hands and the face of the Wolfman and Dracula and Phantom of the Opera. And I also had uh, that poster that you could purchase from the back of a comic book, six feet tall Frankenstein. Did you have that when you were a kid, Adam? I I didn't have the model, but I had the. Uh, they did a series of um, posable figures that I collected right. uh, that were oh, done by. Yeah. I want to say Mego put those out, and I uh-huh. had uh, had those. I had all of those. I was oh, I loved them. I loved yeah. them. And they were about um, eight inches tall, I believe. But yeah, I had them all. Wow. They were great. Yeah, uh, and then yeah, the Frankenstein poster was was it, it was yeah it was it was it was taller than me, and it came with these little fluorescent dots that you could put on his eyes for glow in the dark eyes and so yeah i was i was a real committed uh so yeah when i was i i believe in third grade which would have been 1973 um i very much remember another valued valued childhood memory was going to our local movie theater which was about 12 miles away uh from us down the mountain down the hill where our little town was into the va- river valley, uh, high river valley. And the local theater had a special double feature for kids. And they advertised that, that Dracula himself would show up uh, in between movies to hand out candy and shake your hand. 
uh, and, and that should have scared a bunch of us away, right? I mean, who really wants to meet Dracula? But I, I guess it's kind of like <laughs> Santa Claus, maybe, where you know that it's probably not going to be the real guy, just one of Dracula's helpers or something. And um, but, so the two movies, it was it was a great one. And the two, the first movie was, I believe, the first was they were both from the Hammer. Uh, Hammer Studios of of England, and anybody who's familiar with any kind of monster movie should know that Hammer made these classic, very brightly colored, gorgeous to look at vampire and uh, and Frankenstein movies in the mid from the mid sixties I think into the mid seventies maybe longer, but so these were both Hammer films, and this the first one was called. Countess Dracula, and it involved a countess, a Hungarian, I, I believe, countess, who was so vain and so in love with her own beauty that she had a desire to never grow old. And what she discovered was if the blood of a virgin dripped onto her, she would remain youthful. So she wasn't really a vampire and she didn't drink the blood. Countess Dracula was full of scenes and this was an audience full of kids. And I don't know why, but I still remember the movie as being rated PG or maybe even G for all I know, because otherwise what are all these kids doing here? But there was plenty of nudity involving Countess Dracula bathing in the blood of virgins. There is a real live naked woman uh, swimming around in, in red liquid that we were all told to believe was blood. And this was pretty darn fantastic. Uh, and you would think that this is my underrated horror movie. It's not because it wasn't really scary. This was sort of like a sexy appetizer, uh, for the second feature. And yeah, a guy comes out, uh, pretending to be Dracula. He's got a cape, but I think he's wearing like jeans and a plaid shirt. And maybe he had the plastic fangs. And he just sort of threw candy at us and, and ran, got out of there as quickly as he could. Cause, cause we were all hopped up already from Countess Dracula. And if you have, you know, free candy being thrown at you, you're really hopped up. And the next movie is my number four, uh, which is a, another hammer vampire film. And this is vampire for real, uh, called Vampire Circus. Have you ever heard of this one or seen this? I have. I am very aware of it. I oh, unfortunately my God. have not seen it. Uh, it got a Blu-ray release a couple of years ago. I had requested a review copy, and it they didn't send it for whatever reason. So I never got this around is, to seeing it. This is still one of my all-time favorites. I watched it not long ago to research for my podcast, uh, Don't Tell Anybody, but it's going to be one of my picks for an upcoming My Favorite Horror Movies show. Uh, and it is about a circus. Uh, it takes place during, uh, the plagues, the plague times. And there's a, I believe a Bavarian village, uh, that had, um, to, to counter the plagues had, uh, had shut, shut off the village, uh, quarantined it. Nobody could come in or out. But one day, somehow this mysterious circus just drives their horses straight in. And everybody's actually delighted because 
it's a circus. They've been, it's sort of like the pandemic. And, and suddenly if like Julia Roberts showed up in your hometown and she had her latest movie to show you, you'd, you'd go see it. You wouldn't wonder about, well, how did Julia Roberts get in? Um, so the same is um, the case here with Vampire Circus. So this circus has come to town and they're gypsies, you know, which I know is not the coolest term to use now. And so, <laughs> but they are met with at first suspicion as gypsies were at that time and any outsider was at that time. But they put on a, a really bizarre and fascinating and to the townspeople the most entertaining circus you've ever seen. People leap into midair and land as transformed into tigers and can become, can shapeshift. And there's a strong man who's played by David Prowse. And you know, Adam, who David Prowse would later portray. Am I, am I right in guessing you know this? Oh, one? yes. He's in two films that are near and dear to my heart. Clockwork Orange and uh, Star Wars, of course. Star Wars, Vader. right. Yeah, he was the body and not the voice of Darth Vader. And David right. Prowse is a strong, strong man. And there are little people as well. And um, everybody's delighted, but then suddenly people start dying. Not of the plague, but of these mysterious bite marks and drained blood on their uh, on their necks or from their necks, especially the young women. And like Countess Dracula, and like a lot of Hammer movies, Vampire Circus is a deliberately very sexy movie. Uh, there is one scene where a, a, one of the uh, trapeze artists, I believe, uh, transforms into a butt naked tigress. Uh, so she's naked, but her body is is painted with stripes from from head to toe. So you can certainly make out stuff, but it's obscured enough uh, with with, uh, I believe, blue and white stripes that it passed the censors somehow. And it's uh, and, and yeah, there's a uh, there's a very sexy man vampire who seduces uh, one of the uh, town lasses, the daughter of the mayor who's one of the main characters. And there's these creepy twins, beautiful boy and girl, man and woman twins, young man and young woman twins, blonde, blue eyed. And they seem to have a kind of incestuous relationship, but what they also do, and this adds to the creep factor, is that they, they invite two little boys into a hall of mirrors and the two little boys are kind of semi-hypnotized, or maybe they're just intrigued by these sexy twins. And they enter the Hall of Mirrors, and they start to see themselves doing the funny things, and they're making the faces, ha-ha. But then on the other side of the mirror, there's one of the twins, and he's inviting the one boy to go straight in. And, it, and the man invites a little boy, I, I, I'd say prepubescent or maybe very early pubescent boy, into the mirror and the boy goes in and is just about to like kiss. Ugh. But then he bites the boy <laughs> who we can presume is a virgin and sucks his blood and kills that boy. And the other little boy has the same fate happen to him with the beautiful young blonde twin woman. Uh, again, a little, you know, pedof major pedophilia vibes going on there. But before it gets too sexy, it gets awfully darn violent and the little boy is murdered as well. All of this mm -hmm. goes back to a revenge plot 
that, that we see there's a there's a 15 minute prologue to this whole movie. It's kind of like how the James Bond movies always started out with those action sequences. Only mm-hmm. this really ties into the story, which is it turns out that that uh, the woman who runs the circus is a descendant of this of this vampire who was the village vampire at the time and uh who had seduced women of that village uh, until um the villagers uh got their torches and got their pitchforks and got their stakes and hammers and did away with the original vampire so this whole circus is a scheme to get vampire number 1 from the prologue to to bring him back to life because he's conveniently still kept in that coffin in that same castle that nobody's been in since the prologue. And uh, I I guess you didn't spoil things too much. So I shouldn't spoil more except to just say it's a beautiful film. It's a sexy film. And it's certainly in that 1970s way, very sexy 1970s. And it's legitimately scary, I think. And uh, I, I think it's a terrific movie. There's Fellini elements to it. Again, I think that filmmakers of that time were looking at a lot of the great ones. And it's like, well, I don't have a lot of money. But can I get a little person and put them in clown makeup? And that's kind of creepy, you know. And can I have these women with the bustiers and and everything, you know, uh, seducing, you know, it's almost seducing young, young virgin boys. It's crazy ass stuff, but it it's it's amazing. It's I, I love it. I think that's also available on YouTube. I don't know if for free, and it's certainly available on uh, on all the streaming services for a pretty cheap price because it's an old movie. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, like like you said, it is. A, I know. A, I think it's a Scream Factory release, and there's a few extras there. It's a few bells and whistles they put on there. Bonus materials. I'm not exactly sure. What they are, as I didn't receive a review copy and I never got around to purchasing one. And I also wanted to mention, I'm glad you brought the physical stuff up too, because Abominable Dr. Fibes is actually out on a Blu-ray from Kino where you get the sequel as well. So two for the price of one. And I think that's on sale right now as we speak for $12.99. So you can pick that up and... (laughs) operators are standing by now folks <laughs> yeah so it's uh i think it's a halloween <laughs> thing so maybe by the time this uh posts uh, people if they it may still be on sale just wanted to mention it uh but anyway yeah vampire circus i've i'm very familiar with the title knew a little bit about what it was a what it was about but you have really stoked my interest and so Maybe I, I turned like you I, on a little bit. I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> hey, it sounds interesting, that's for sure. And uh, I've always, like I said, I really had a desire to see it because anything Hammer was, you know, some of the Hammer stuff did become a little a little formulaic towards the end yeah. of the, the run of the studios. But even the formulaic stuff was always interesting. There was always something worth that made those films worthwhile, even if it was like, well, I've seen this before, but there's always, there was always just enough, just enough yeah. to keep you intrigued. So, uh, and so, they're British, yeah. you know, so sure. like a lot of times you'd see these kind of like great British actors in these things, you know, and, and it'd be like, well, I guess, you know, they, they, they would like do Royal Shakespeare company at night and then come in in the day and, and do their thing where they're like the, uh, you know, the caretaker who gets, uh, gets uh, you know murdered by frankenstein or something like that for the money and um so you get really good acting too it's and and good good qualities overall good production values 
Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Always, always. That was one thing you always knew you were going to get with the uh, the hammer stuff. Now that's funny you mentioned hammer because uh, one of my underseen horror films is from their competing one of their competitors, uh, British uh, production company Amicus, hmm. uh, who did a series of anthology films. And there were five, maybe six of these. And I think the last two were Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror were the, how the series ended. But it started with Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 1965, which was, it, it was a toss up between Dr. Terror's House of Horrors and the one I'm actually going to talk about, which would be Asylum. And it is a uh, 1972, I think it was the fourth in this series of anthology films. Most of these were pinned uh, these anthology films, rather, were penned by Robert Block, and this one was no exception. Mm. Robert Block, of course, penned the novel. Psycho. Uh, Psycho, yes, and many, many other things. Directed by Roy Ward Baker, who was no stranger to Hammer as well. So, yeah, it was called uh, House of Crazies in subsequent U.S. releases, and uh, there were some, I've talked to a friend of mine who fondly remembers seeing this in a theater, and he said he remembers seeing the ads for it uh, being billed as House of Crazies. Uh, I think people... remember that as well. House of Crazies sounds mm -hmm. a little familiar to me. Maybe yeah, I saw you a newspaper had... ad or something. Yep, that sounds about right. Yeah, because uh, these, well, you know, it's funny, these, these Amicus films would turn up in re-releases under different titles. Vault of Horror actually was filmed, it was released in 19... 1973, but turned up again in 1980 when I was in fourth grade as Tales from the Crypt 2. Mm. And I thought it was a new movie at the time. I didn't get to see it because it was R-rated. My parents were kind of, no, you're in fourth grade. You're not going to see that. Uh -huh. But uh, uh, and I, de I desperately wanted to. The trailers were really selling it. And Vault of Horror is a very good anthology film. Uh, it, it it is It is one of the better ones. Of that cycle, I think. But this was the the fourth one. You before this, you had Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, as I mentioned. You had Torture Garden, which had, which had Burgess Meredith. He was kind of uh -huh. like the ring the ringmaster who you know, uh, gives the uh, kind of tells these tales or whatever. Uh, you had the third one, I think, was the House That Dripped Blood from nineteen seventy. And yeah, and this is number four. And as I said, then after this, you had Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. But this one has Peter Cushing, Britt Eklund, Robert Powell, Herbert Long, Barry Morse, Peter, or, sorry, Patrick McGee, who was also in Clockwork Orange, too. Mm -hmm. We'll make a call back there. And running just a little under an hour and a half. So it gets it's amazing that they are uh, able to uh, get as much done in that amount of time. I think there are, I can't remember... How many stories? I'm just I'm trying to remember. I know there's a, the framing device, and uh, yeah, there's actually I think four stories, four stories and a a framing device. So to get all that in in 88 minutes is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, and then there's a uh, you know there's um, uh, I'm trying to actually remember the stories, uh, but I don't want to give too much uh, away about them. Um. You know, but they but they are just they all have the twist endings basically uh, to you know and uh, uh, so and there's I think one of them is uh, kind of a a redo of the monkey's paw from what I remember mm -hmm. kind of a reworking of that um, and then there's um, you know there's I remember the one that really sticks in my mind is there's there's a woman who dismembers her husband and put and cuts him up and puts his pieces into a, a freezer 
and the mm. parts, the body parts come back to life. Ah, that's always <laughs> come fun. after her. So, uh, yeah, that one has Barbara Parkins in it. So, uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, and, and the framing devices, essentially, these are all people who were, who, who were patients at the asylum. And for some reason or another, these four story, these characters all come from these four stories. They're in the asylum because something drove them there. And so that's the framing device you get. But uh, anyway, a really, really uh, intriguing and uh, at times quite scary uh, little anthology film from Amicus. And so I wanted to recommend Asylum or House of Crazies, as it were, depending on which version you're seeing. And it is out there on Blu-ray. And so mm-hmm. that's my number four. Well, I guess, you know, it occurred to me when you were talking to me and you went over that cast. That's a terrific cast. And, you know, I, I I guess that one way that you can get that kind of level of a cast like that is with an anthology film, you're not asking any of them to be there more than a couple of days. You know, you you, you got this one segment that's, what, 12 minutes to 20 minutes, let's say, whatever it is. And that's probably going to take less than a week. And, you know, maybe they're not even the lead character. So it's like, yeah, we can get Britt Eklund for two days. Let's let's have her be the femme fatale in this one segment or we can get Herbert Long, you know, that's yeah. the Pink Panther guy. Uh, yeah, that that's great. You know, we can get him for a day. And next thing you know, you got your movie. And I, I always like those, too, because it's it's sort of like um, in a way, it's kind of like what they say about the movie Airplane, which is if you don't like one joke, just wait a minute and you'll get another joke and you'll like that one. With the anth- I like the anthology movies for that reason. It's like every time you think, well, this one's kind of a, a dog. It's like, hold on, you know, here comes Roddy McDowell or somebody in the next one. And and, and it's a good one. It's a fun one. You know, Trilogy of Terrors. That, oh, yes. uh, yeah, that one with, uh, with, um, with. Um, Karen Black. Karen Black. Exactly. You know, everybody remembers the third one with the Zulu doll and everything. Mm-hmm. But there were three of them. There's a re- It's called Trilogy for a reason. And yeah. I, I watched that not long ago, another research thing for my podcast. And it's like the first one was actually pretty good. You know, I, I, I hate to keep using the word sexy, like I, people are going to think I'm just this big horn dog. But the first one is really kind of <laughs> sexy. And because she's seducing this guy and everything. And and and, uh, and and she's really good. I mean, Karen Black wasn't this terrible actress. She was, you know, I know she was ridiculous in like Airport 75, but she was... <laughs> she she had chops and she certainly brought them to that. She played three, you know, three different, actually four different characters in the trilogy. Yes. And, and only the second one doesn't really work because you can see it a mile away. Yeah. But you I, can. I, yeah. But I think they were all three in that case uh, scripted by Richard Matheson, who did, of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of the great Twilight Zones and, and mm-hmm. I am. Night Stalker. Yeah. Yeah, and duel so, for Spielberg. <laughs> exactly, and duel for Spielberg. Exactly. So that's yeah. the other thing too. You know, I think writers sometimes. I, I have to imagine it's fun to write horror movies in general, and maybe even like a, a, an anthology, like you're talking about. You, you can just you have a bunch of short stories that you've had sort of in your head. We'll get them all out and string them together, and you've got an anthology movie. And uh, so, yeah, I've always enjoyed them. I'm, I'm glad you brought them up. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I had to pick one and it's so hard to pick a good anthology film cuz you know all of them have their uh have their plus pluses and minuses but you but they're all yeah. fun in their own way uh unless you're getting into something like Creepshow 2 or Creepshow 3 those are 
kind of bottom of the barrel. They're always bad examples, but but uh, yeah. Kucha one is pretty darn good. But it's pretty that, good. It's yeah. the most faithful to the idea that we're going to, you know, sort of make a movie version of the old EC horror comics. Oh yeah, yeah. And, it, it and I know they were very committed to that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. But yeah, Karen Black. Interesting to note that she was also in Nashville the same year that she sure. was in uh, uh, Trilogy of Terror. But uh, and the only prop that I own personally is the doll from Trilogy of Terror. I actually have a uh, taken from the actual surviving mold from the doll oh. that was used in the film. I had that in my home. That's the only prop. And I saw that film when I was four years old and was always wanted one. Uh, I guess I was a strange kid. And, <laughs> and so as an adult, I finally got one. It was a limited, uh, there were only just a couple hundred of them made oh, and I was able to get my hands on one. So I've, it sits proudly on display in my kitchen. <laughs> on a uh, shelf. <laughs> well, people presume because I've worked in props my whole life that I must have like a garage full yeah. of this interesting stuff, but not really. You know, first mm-hmm. of all, I'm not a huge, surprisingly, I'm not a huge collector. I mean, I collect things and put them in my head. You know, I don't really necessarily put them in my attic or in my living room. I just sort of watch and rewatch and rewatch the things I love until I know every line of dialogue. I know who oh, is yeah. the cinematographer. Yeah, you know this. Um, you identify, but, uh, but even also another thing too, with when you do props, especially now, it's not like, okay, the movie's over. I get to take all this cool stuff home. Somebody from the studio or somebody from the production will say, wait a minute, you know, we want to hold on to that because we might reshoot down the line and we're going to need all of our stuff. So usually it all goes into a, a storage container or a warehouse and it sits there in the, with the possibility that there might be reshoots. And whether there are or are not, honest to God, I think half the time it, it all winds up in a dumpster. You know, enterprising types, I'm sure, find ways of sneaking this stuff out. And the next thing you know, it's on eBay for $1,000. But in my case, I just never went that way. It's like, you know, I, I did the movies or I, or I saw the movies. And that's that's been pretty much enough for me. I got like six posters around the house of, of stuff I've been a part of. Just to sort of remind me, it's like this is this is what paid for this house. This these th- these things among others. So, but I you know listen, I envy you know collectors. Uh, I I, I kind of wish I had that in me, but I I, I don't for whatever reason. It's surprising. Well, and it gets to be uh, an issue of practicality too. You there's only so much space, and so you yes. <laughs> you have to. Uh, there is that, and I uh, yeah. I, I've I've actually said the shelves that I have that have my physical media on them. Once it gets to a point where there's no more room, I'm going to be selling some of the ones that I do have. So I've already yeah. made that announcement. I've said, you know, I'm not going to put another shelf up. When these shelves are filled, that's it. And there's no more. So, so I uh, hope, but, you know, I've still got ample amount of space for the time being. So we'll see. So we'll anyway. See. It's your life. <laughs> yep, that's right. So, well, number three, uh, I'm curious again. Can't wait to hear for, for me? your third choice. Yeah. Oh, it's my turn. Yeah. Uh, um, so my next one's from 1976. And the significant thing about scary movies in 1976 is you think about what was the big scary movie that came out in 1975. This should not be a trick question. You know this one, Adam. Well, there's Jaws, of Jaws. course. Jaws. Ding, yes. ding, ding. Yes. I, I'm going for the exceedingly obvious here. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, Jaws came out 75. 
the movie of the year, people lined around the blocks, all the things you, you, you've seen online is true. It was a phenomenon. Uh, and so, of course, copycats came out like, like a plague. It, it just suddenly you had killer bears, you had killer alligators, you had piranha. You, you know, I think they were like re-releasing some old like, killer frogs. There was a movie in the, I think the early seventies called Night of the Lepus, you know, about killer mm-hmm. rabbits, uh, that predated Jaws. But anyway, mine is a Jaws ripoff and it's not a good movie. I will tell you this, uh, of all the ones that you're saying, like, well, you can get the Blu-ray or, or I'm telling you, oh, you can go to YouTube. I watched it. It's fun. It's stupid. But when I saw it at age 12 with my sister, Kath, it was again down at our local community theater and it's called Squirm. And it's about killer worms. Now, these aren't the kind of necessarily the friendlyish worms that you would stick on your hook and cast into the water to catch a fish. These, this takes place in the South, I think Georgia, and these are blood worms that have like little fangs on the end. They're almost kind of like millipedish, really. And some bizarre, you know, some sort of scientific mishap has to be the impetus for why are the worms suddenly going crazy and doing bad things. And in this case, Lightning strikes something or other, I forget, a tower of some sort, and it electrifies the ground, which somehow turns the worms into hostile superworms that come up from out of the ground. And not only up out of the ground, they come out of like faucets. There's a scene where a young woman is taking a shower and suddenly worms are just all over her and they're biting her, of course, naked flesh. And uh, because again, the 70s, <laughs> duh. And it it stars a young actor named Don Scardino. And if that name is familiar to you at all, it's probably not as an actor. He had been in the original Broadway cast of Godspell. I think he might have played Jesus in that or the Jesus, Jesus equivalent. Um, but he is mostly known now as a director, mostly of television. And that's I've met him. He has directed a ton of Law and Order episodes. And he, I believe, was also one of the main directors and, and I believe producer for 30 Rock and a number of shows. Terrific person, terrific fellow with a tremendous sense of humor. But yeah, when I met Don Scardino, it didn't register for a long, long, long time. And then one day, one of my coworkers was like, you know, that Don there was an actor once. He was in a movie called This, That, and the Other, and then Squirm. And I'm like, Squirm? That was like <laughs> my number one movie when I was the age age of 12. And what happened too, you know, Kath and I went to see this and and there she was, I guess at the time, probably nine or nine or ten. And I again I was it was 76, so I had to be 12. And there's a scene in there. There's there's this kind of lunk-headed southern perhaps mentally damaged young man who's constantly uh constantly stalking our our leading lady who doesn't really want anything to do with him but she kind of politely fends him off but he gets attacked by the worms and they burrow into his face and so there are scenes where somehow or other you've got these wriggling worms you know crawling on this man's face and kind of in it 
And of course, the music is all this sort of like, sort of like, you know, the crazy worm sound, you you know, like Jaws with that da da. You have to have a sound to let you know when to be scared. And yeah, this man, I forget his name, uh, gets, gets the worms in his face and he can't really get them out. And instead of dying, it just kind of drives him crazy. And he becomes sort of this hulking Frankenstein type figure who will every once in a while pop up and 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 go to the young woman that he's been trying to ask out on a date like you know i love you or something like that with worms crawling (laughs) off of his face so it's just one of those and again i this is not uh this should not be mistaken for anywhere near the quality of steven spielberg's jaws it's uh on a scale of you know on a Jaws scale from one to five, it's a it's a one point seven five. Let's say in terms of cinematic quality, even my friend Don Scardino wasn't that great of an actor, but um, and and anyway, there's one scene that I just that just elevates this so much to me, and because it it just um, the we, the worm face guy at toward the end of the movie attacks our hero Don Scardino, and as he's trying to kill him. He says, now you're the worm face. And this <laughs> was another one of those you're laughing, but you're also kind of peeing your pants in fright at the same time. And when Kath and I were home for like years uh, to this day, you know, every once in a while we'll be like, now you're worm face and we would chase each other around the house or like hide in closets and jump out and pretend to be the worm face guy this was good nightmare fuel for for at least a good a solid year and good practical joke uh material and so it just there are much much better films even some of the ripoffs like grizzly or uh or alligator are better better made films than squirm but i just i just thought of it it might have been the very first one i thought of underseen for a reason but if you're in the mood to like have a couple of friends over maybe open some party beverages of some sort this is a great one i'm surprised we didn't see it in a drive-in because i I wish i would have seen it in a drive-in i'm sure it's a great drive-in flick well it is that that's for sure and i i unfortunately did not see it in a drive-in but i have seen it multiple times it is a multiple uh, a, a yes Many times, and I actually have the special edition Blu-ray that is now out of print. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and uh, there are some bonus features. There's a commentary there from the director Jeff Lieberman. There's um, uh, a featurette, I think, where he discusses. You know, does where he the apologize idea for anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, he went on to make a couple of other horror films that are pretty highly regarded, and then he went on to make some serious documentaries for. Um, HBO, uh, I think the America Undercover series. Uh, I think he, the, where they had those series of documentaries that were award winning on a, a HBO in the early 90s. He made a couple of those uh, that were actually quite well received on the serious end of things. But the same year as Squirm, he also made a film called Blue Sunshine, which uh, did not make my list, but probably should have because it's pretty good too. It's about these uh, hippies from the sixties who did all these uh, hallucinogenics and 10 years mm. after the fact, they are becoming homicidal maniacs uh, because the effects of these hallucinogenics have uh, done some unintended damage. 
And it's a really effective uh, horror film that he made the same year. And I don't know if it was before Squirm. I don't know the timeline on that. And then in 1981, he did a slasher film called Just Before Dawn uh, with George Kennedy and that as as well. And I believe, um, oh, I'm trying to, uh, Chris Lemon, Jack Lemon's son is in that. So, so uh-huh. and then he went on, He there was a long time where he didn't do any horror films. And then he did this really interesting horror film in the 2000s around 2004 i had not seen it until last year they sent me a review copy of it it was called satan's little helper and i had Ah. the most fun with that movie i'm telling you i really did it was it was uh obviously shot on a low budget but it's essentially about this little kid who uh he plays a video game called satan's little helper and uh and there's somebody dressed up as the character from the video game and who's actually going around killing people on Halloween night. And the little boy thinks that uh, he's that, that, he, that he's real. And so uh, he doesn't realize that it's a serial killer dressed up in. But there's all of this uh, subversive humor running throughout the film. And uh, there's a scene where he's, his dad, the little boy's dad, makes him mad. And he says, I'm going to get my friend to kill you. <laughs> and he does right in front of the little boy. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that's the thing about horror movies, you know, I mean, and I I think the critics are always pretty harsh on them. You know, a lot of times, you know, because it's a quote unquote genre movie, they they automatically they come into it with their, you know, their noses up in the air. Mm -hmm. And unless it's something like an A24 or Stanley Kubrick's The Shining or something, they're already predisposed to kind of hate it. You know, a lot of times Mm -hmm. the mainstream critics. Um, And so. But there is something I think of value, even if I can acknowledge or or you can acknowledge that a certain movie is not necessarily a great movie in terms of its, its plot hole, as many plot holes as a, you know, a, that a Mack truck could drive through or the acting's wooden or, you know, the cinematography is not great. It's obviously cheap. You can see the wires. Or, but if it's fun, you know, I require to not be bored. If I'm going to give an hour and a half to two hours of my time I want to not be bored. And the way you don't bore me is to surprise me and to, to just give me stuff that I did not expect to see. And there it is, you know, that's, that's what I love. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, this ponderous Swedish epic where every once in a while, somebody dies a mysterious death to be, to me, a good horror movie. It can just simply be a good fun hey let's just you know roll up our sleeves and dive into the blood uh kind of thing you know i don't like misogyny i don't like a certain amount of like a a, a sort of grindhouse thing where right. you're you're taking the point of view of of a sadist um mm-hmm. i mean psycho you know listen not everybody can be hitchcock nobody could be hitchcock so psycho managed to put you into the perspective of a psychotic killer and you sympathized to a, a degree and he got away with it. And occasionally others can get away with it. 95% of the time they don't. And so, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to see anything through the eyes of a rapist. No, I do not. I will not follow you the rest of the way through this movie and things like that. Or just yet, yeah, you know, somebody just in a chair and being tortured and tortured and tortured. It's like, this isn't fun anymore. This is, this is not funny. You know, it's sadistic and that I don't care for at all. That's, you know, call me a prude, uh, but that's not going to be my thing. I like fun 
and and you can have fun and be extremely gory you know the evil dead series or something like that uh yeah. the blood doesn't bother me as long as i know it's all fun and game folks it's all fake it's all pretend um you know even sometimes a really well made like henry portrait of a serial killer that was a really well made movie that i had a hard time finishing and i finished it like it was a pill i had to swallow and i can't <laughs> say it was a terrible movie and i thought michael rooker was great but i don't ever want to see that movie again cuz i don't i don't want to live that i don't want to live henry's life ever again yeah I feel the same way about that one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, just one one other thing about scoring. You you brought back a, a memory. I remember reading when it came out on VHS tape. There was a review of it in Fangoria magazine, oh, and they used God. to uh, do reviews of uh, of VHS releases. And I remember them talking about the Don Scardino character, and he's obviously from he's a New York City boy. New York City boy. Who, and he, yeah, and he comes down to uh, to uh, Fly Creek, Georgia, as the Georgia is the town. Yeah. Where, yeah, and so. He's down there visiting this girl that he met at an antique shop, and that's the how the romance started, I guess, yes. before the film begins. But anyway, they were describing him, and they said, he fits in about as well as Hitler at a bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that line has always stuck with me throughout my entire life. So uh, it's, that, that's funny stuff. Well... Uh We'll move along to my number three, which is, uh, and it's funny, you're talking about uh, killer worms. Well, I'm going to talk about killer rats or a killer rat in this case. And it's of unknown origin, starring Peter Weller from better known from the Robocop films, uh, directed by George Pan Cosmatos, who would go on to do Rambo, Rambo. First Blood, part two. Yes. yes. And uh, Tombstone, of course, yes. his two claims to fame. And this was an early entry for George Pan Cosmatos. I think it's a very effective film. I rewatched it again last night, uh, showed it to my mother. She hadn't seen it in years and years and uh -huh. just had a had a real blast. It's, again, very short movie, hour and 25 minutes, I think. But it, and it's, an, it's a very simple plot, very simplistic. It's Peter Weller. He's moved into a brownstone that he's just recently renovated in New York City. And his wife and son, is they're out of town. And he's menaced by this rat that is basically playing a uh, a game with him to taunt him. And the rat is super intelligent and basically is uh, he, he he's ahead of Peter Weller every step of the way. And he tries every trick in the book to get rid of the rat. And there and I'm pretty jaded when it comes to horror films. There's not much that I that really gets to me. And there's a scene where he goes to the restroom in the middle of the night and pulls the toilet lid up and the rat is in the toilet and comes uh, up. I'm telling you that scene and that, I mean, I almost leapt out of my seat uh, the first time I saw it. And so it's just a really effective movie uh, in terms of like uh, these nature, uh, when nature attacks, it falls under that category, like you were talking about. And that's um, what year was this? 1983 released by warner brothers uh wow in, which is amazing uh there's a nice blu-ray out of of it uh available via screen factory who does so much of these uh, titles like vampire circus that we just talked about this is another screen factory and um and you even got a commentary there from the director on there as well uh, and peter weller so but it's uh yeah it's it's really really good. There's a lot of jump out of your seat moments and just very effectively done. Uh, not you know the, I think the IMDb on it is like six point five out of ten, and there's maybe oh. 
you know, it's it's not a very high score, but I, and I don't really know why because it it really does exactly it delivers the goods. And that's so it. Anyone, yeah, yeah, that's, what that's we're talking about. It's like if if it does what it's supposed to do and it does it well, why don't you consider that a good movie? Other than you don't want that type of movie, which is like, why are you watching it in the first place? Then save mm-hmm. save the good stuff for those of us who will appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So of unknown origin, I would, I think that's underseen and I think it needs to be seen by people who uh, love horror films. And if you want a good jump, I guarantee you there's at least one, maybe two in this film. If you've got a pulse, you're going to jump. That's all I'm going to say. Well, it's, you know, I think when we were first talking about this topic a week ago, when we, when you contacted me about it, um, we, I, I, my first response was not really so much underseen as underrated uh, in that I've got two movies here. I'm going to, I'm going to just briefly mention them and then get on to my number two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was originally going to list at my number two spot, a movie that's not underseen, I think at all, but I do think it's critically underrated and it kind of relates to what we were just saying. It's, I think it's a very well-crafted and, very well done movie and that's return of the living dead from 1985 which you are also mentioning dan o'bannon he wrote and directed that and this is a person who really knew how to craft a good solid scary movie you know evidently through aliens and 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 some of the other things he'd written uh alien i believe the first one uh yeah but i I saw that movie. You were talking about your mom uh, making her watch the rat movie with you. My mom and I saw Return of the Living Dead on the same day. I kid you not. She and I would like do these double features sometimes where I'd skip school. She'd let me skip school. And we she'd write me a note. And she and I would go up to Wheeling, West Virginia, which is about an hour north of where I lived. And we would see a double feature. And in this case, on on one very memorable movie day, we saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And Return of the Living Dead in the same, it was like a one, two movie theater that at that time, it, the multiplexes weren't so, you know, so popular. And, but this was mm-hmm. a, a double plex. So we saw both of them and it was just the best, one of the best movie days ever. And I love that movie. It's, it's just very funny. It's got the gore. It's got the scares. It's got the critical commentary. And it's also got, um, oh golly, who's, who's the, um, who's the character actor? Um, James Karen is in James Karen, the great James Karen in a like a starring role. I mean, how great is that? That like toward the end of his career, or at least in the twilight part of it, James Karen mm-hmm. gets like a leading role in this movie that winds up being, I believe, very, very seen and very popular, and so much so that there were sequels. But I do think that sometimes a movie like that, and another one that's on my list that isn't on my list called Phantasm. Uh, from 1979 that movie made Mm -hmm. a lot of money and had a lot of sequels but critics were always like well this is crap you know this is teen crap and i'll I'll sometimes go back to imdb and look through the critics responses and almost always in the horror genre it's it's putting it down and i think both phantasm and return of the living dead uh, well especially return of the living dead in terms of craftsmanship it's very well made extremely well made you know it's got a real story arc and real characters and real suspense phantasm not so much but phantasm is almost a david lynch movie at times where you just go into these oddball little places 
you know, surrounded by this typical teens in California kind of thing. Don't go into the funeral home. I am going to get to my other movie, by the way, my number, my real number two. But I just, you know, I just can't say it enough that even if you have seen something like Phantasm or whatever, it's, they're not bad movies. They're very good movies and that they bring an original vision to cinema. And that's what we're aching for. We're aching for original visions. And this, the one that I now will declare as my number two certainly has that. And uh, forgive me, I don't have the name of the filmmaker here. You might know already. Um, Castle Freak uh, from 1995. I'm jumping in time. I went from all 70s, Return of the Living Dead was 85. But now I'm going to go Castle Freak. Do you know of this one, Adam? Have you ever heard of Castle Freak? You've got me. You have stumped me. You have officially stumped me. And and again, I'm sure at least one of your listeners out there uh, is going to going to give me more detail than I'm prov- going to yell at the screen more detail than I'm going to provide in terms of cast or director, but I'm kind of winging this one a little bit. The way I found out about Castle Freak is that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I have my favorites and among them is one called the flop house um, hosted by three uh, Brooklyn uh, writer, writer comedians. One of them is actually a bartender they're very funny. They have fantastic chemistry. They do everything off the cuff. It's it's unbelievable what, what they come up with just off the top of their heads, playing off each other. But one of the um one of the three that hosts the show, Stuart Wellington, is obsessed with a lot of sort of junky, cheesy movies. And Castle Freak is one that um he will recommend like repeatedly. Like you ought to see Castle Freak. And I did see it. And it is about a castle and a freak who lives in the castle. And and doing a little research, I found that the financer, the 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 producer, the person who who runs this the this studio that makes these cheap horror movies that were went straight to video in the 1980s and 90s, um, owned a castle in I think in Italy. And so a lot of his movies took place in that castle. And I had a free location and he, he lived there. He'd just go from his bedroom and walk down to the set. And this American family uh, comes to Italy to, uh, they learn they've inherited a castle. And what they don't know is along with the castle itself, they've inherited the freak, uh, which is some poor unfortunate soul who was tortured and abused uh, by, I believe, his mother. Uh, when they lived there long ago or some years ago, and she locked him and chained him in the basement. And again, I'm probably going to get details of this wrong. Please forgive me, Castle Freak freaks out there, if there are any of you. I, I know it does have a definite cult following. But um, so the the freak, whose name I can't remember, has been living there for years. and And there's some sort of deal that the mother made with the housekeeper of you have to slide him a plate of food every day and get, make sure he's got something to drink. Oops. There's my, uh, make, make sure he has plenty of food. Make sure he has, or make sure he has adequate food. Let's say, make sure he has adequate liquid to drink, but otherwise he's going to just stay chained in this dungeon cell for the rest of his life. And this family, which is a, a, a mom and a dad, 
both played by these B actors that somebody out there knows, but I can't remember offhand and I didn't write it down. You would think that maybe taking notes would be a thing you do before podcasts. I should know this. I didn't in this case, but the mom and dad (laughs) have a teenage daughter who is blind. That much I remember. Blind teenage daughter who's, you know, she's a teenager, so I'm not going to dwell too much on her attractiveness, but she's by most measures a physically attractive young woman. And so the castle freak somehow or other gets peaks of her and falls in love, you know, it's sort of that beauty and the beast thing. Only in this case, the beast is quite demented and, and has been so isolated from human beings for so long. He doesn't understand how to cope with being people or how to interact with human beings. And there's a horrible, horrible scene that's rather over the top where the the castle freak gets loose, by the way, out of his cell. That's what it is too. He gets loose. He's wandered. The family doesn't know this yet. They know things, odd things are happening, but they don't know why. It's because the castle freak has been sneaking around and peeking through like secret doors to, to watch the family be a family and watch the blind daughter find her way around the castle and, 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 and fall in love with her. But he watches one night when the, the, the mother and father have a big argument. Father goes out to the local tavern, gets rip-roaring drunk, picks up the town wench, the prostitute, a humongous bosomed prostitute with the obligatory bustier and the, you know, the sort of milkmaid's kind of uniform look. And they go back to the castle and father finds a place to have sex with the prostitute. And the castle freak just watches. And when something happens where the father and the prostitute have an argument and the father says, screw you, you can let your way out. I'm, I'm out of here. And so he leaves. And here comes the castle freak. And I'm just going to say this. Uh, if you've ever heard the term eating a woman out, um, <laughs> castle freak takes this, unfortunately, very literally and does just that in the place where it can be a source of pleasure for a woman, but in this case, not at all. And it is a horrible, horrible scene that you could be one of those ones of what I described. It, it's it's not uh, ever going to be endorsed by, you know, by uh, by now or or Gloria Steinem. That's for sure. Uh, but the whole movie is actually, I I think, very skillfully made. They make good use of the castle, and it is very suspenseful. And the family has to sort of become a, it's, it's another of those things of like, well, the family came here in a form of emotional disrepair, dysfunction. And by the end, they're all kind of like working together to overcome the, the ravages of the, of the castle freak. And it is scary as shit. I really think so. And I know it also sort of has a cult following among people that get those like fan magazines that you'll see sometimes at like comic cons and stuff that are on like really glossy, but kind of cheap paper with like photos of like an ax going through somebody's head. Uh, those kind of sort of like grindhouse fan magazines. It's a real cult classic. Oops. And I'm burping. <laughs> well, that does happen. Cut that out. <laughs> Maybe not. Cut that no. out. Well, who cares? It doesn't matter. Uh, we're so. all human here. So, <laughs> I'd recommend it if you're, you know, I would recommend it if you are the kind of person that likes that 
you know, psycho isn't scary enough. Gee, I think, you know, I think Return of the Living Dead is boring. You know, I want high octane gore, gore, gore. It's one of those. And I think it's kind of one of the better ones because at least they have good actors and, and a really, and the Castle Freak body makeup, he's head to toe naked in this sagging, grotesque body makeup. He's genuinely frightening just to behold. So mm. on those measures alone, you could fast forward past the eating out scene if you wish. Uh, but it's it's certainly one that I guess I'm glad to have seen, and I guess I'd recommend it. <laughs> well, uh, I used my magic light box to uh, do a little research while you were chatting to find Hooray. out who the director was. Because somebody's got to know these things. Uh, yeah, and it was Stuart Gordon. Stuart uh, Gordon who had previously Stuart done I- Reanimator. Yeah, it was one of those uh, full moon uh, releases full moons. from uh, re- you know from um, oh what's his name? I'm trying to think of the guy who ran full moon. Uh, but on the anyway, castle. and, and you know what? I think it's funny you mentioned that. I believe that I have a Blu-ray of Castle Freak that was sent to me two months ago or three months ago, and it's it was in a stack of stuff, and I saw and I just put it to the side. And because I get, there's a box set of these full moon releases that they put out from Arrow. It was a limited edition. They sent me the whole thing, and I think it's in there. So now I've got to go in my closet and dig in there and go find it because I believe I have it. <laughs> well, I think there has been renewed interest in it after, you know, the Flophouse has gained an audience. You know, I'm certainly one of, I don't know how many. And I think since uh, since Stuart Wellington recommended it, it, sales have have increased and there has been yeah. a demand. What is this castle freak anyway? Isn't it crazy that I've got stuff that I, I, and, and and it takes somebody like yourself to jog my brain to remind me, Hey, you've got a copy of that. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> we all have that capability. I mean, we don't have it for free in a box, but you know, it's, it's the miracle of this uh, social media yeah. age. Yeah. Any movie I I remember or can think of is, you know, I'd say 80, 85 to 90 percent of them, you can get them. They're somewhere mm-hmm. out there. You can watch them yeah. on your phone. Well, thanks to your recommendation, I'm going to be uh, pulling that out as soon as we finish okay. this conversation. You've so, been warned. Uh, done deal, pal. So anyway, Deranged is my uh, number two pick. This is, uh, we all know the story of Ed Gein, which served as the inspiration for Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho. Among, uh, and that's just two of the films that uh, that story, you know, he was a uh, basically a serial killer who was so obsessed with his mother that when his mother died, he basically heard voices and she convinced him to go and dig people up to keep her company. And But that wasn't enough. And so then he had to kill people and he would skin them and wear their skins and cross-dress and all this kind of stuff. And uh, he lived out in rural Wisconsin and was eventually discovered. I think one of the neighbors figured somebody disappeared. And there was, I forget exactly how they uncovered what was really going on. But it's a very grisly story. took place in the the 50s. And we like to think of the 50s as such a uh, happy time post-World War II. And this just goes to show you that there was a lot of darkness going on under the the surface that... uh, during the Eisenhower years, uh, we were not privy to. Uh, anyway, Deranged is probably the closest to the true story of Ed Gein. He's, uh, um, he's, he's not known by the name, name of Ed Gein in the film. He's known by Ezra Cobb, and he's portrayed by the terrific uh, character actor Roberts Blossom. Now, most oh, of us I worked know- with Roberts Blossom. 
Did you really? You lucky guy. I am so. I was such a huge Romero fan. movie. I I worked on called The Dark Half. He had a small part, and it was one of yeah. Ones it was nineteen ninety one. Yeah, yeah. And I hope hope you had good memories of uh, working with him. I hope. I I think so. I mean, it's so long ago, but I uh, yeah. yeah. He's been gone a while, unfortunately. But yeah, he was a great character actor. He has a small part in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, and he is, uh, probably most well-known for performing, uh, for his performance as the, uh, the next door neighbor in Home Alone that uh, Macaulay well, that... Culkin is, is, uh, afraid of, and then eventually sees that he's just a kindly, uh, lonely old man. And, uh, but he's, he's also in a terrific film that I'm a huge fan of, Resurrection, starring Ellen Burstyn. She was Oscar nominated for that in 1980, and he, he plays her father. Yeah, in that. But anyway, uh, this uh, film is um, um, it is directed by Alan Ormsby and produced by Bob Clark, who would go on to do uh, mm-hmm. Black Christmas and A Christmas Story, two of the most famous Christmas films. Also, he <laughs> did Porky's too, right? Porky's. He did Porky's. Yes, he did. Very versatile uh, guy. Yes, he was. But uh, Alan Ormsby is the director of this film, but it is just a very disturbing film. Uh, years ago, right after my divorce, about 20-some years ago, I was one of the first people I attempted to date after <laughs> being in a marriage for a while. And mm. that's always uh, awkward, you know. And so she was a horror film fan, and I said, well, I've got one I bet you haven't seen. Let me show you Deranged. <laughs> no. And I ran it for her, and she, she asked for it. It's like, you asked for it. Oh, and she, the next day, called me and said, I imagine that that character Ezra Cobb was in the back seat of my car all the way home I couldn't get him out of my mind that is one of the most disturbing films I have ever seen <laughs> and uh but yes it was released by American International Did she break Pictures. up with you was this a was this a deal breaker for her and No it wasn't a deal breaker we went out a couple times after that but we weren't compatible just not because of that but just you know just we just weren't vibing uh, for various reasons she's a really nice person just wasn't really uh, a good match but, I was just um, of that scene in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle, uh, Robert De Niro takes uh, <laughs> the porno movie, right. runs out and is disgusted by him. I'm glad that didn't happen to you. It did not, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, we we ended on good terms. It was kind of we both agreed. You know, it's just yeah, this is just not a good match. But uh, it is a it's a very short film, only an hour and twenty two minutes. So I always like to tell people these are yeah. they won't take a lot of your time. But boy, uh, the rewards are great if you want to see something that you won't forget. And again, 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb. I don't know. I, I, I'm just, you know. But uh, it, just the way things are, are staged and framed uh, are, are shot in this film, I should say, uh, the way that it's just uh, it's hard to articulate exactly what makes it so disturbing. You kind of have to see it for yourself. But it's uh, it is effectively done. Let's put it that way. And um, yeah, I remember the uh, the art, the uh, the poster art said. Uh, I remember it saying uh, something about uh, Sally May died a very unnatural death, but the worst hasn't happened to her yet. And it had a a woman hanging by her feet with uh, Robert's blossom in the corner of the frame of the poster. <laughs> so. Well, you got to admit that too. Whether or not you're a horror movie fan or monster movie fan, they have some of the best taglines on posters. Oh, yeah. You know? 
you know, be afraid, be very afraid. And of course, you know, in space, no one can hear you, hear you scream. But even like, I remember a, a movie called Motel Hell. Do you ever remember that one? I love it. Love it. Yes, yeah. And it, it takes, what is it? It takes a lot of critters to, what is it? It takes a lot of critters to make farmer something's fritters. Farmer Vincent. Farmer Vincent. <laughs> Farmer Vincent. Farmer Vincent. That useless knowledge rolling around in my head. All this <laughs> Well, here we are. It's time for number one, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, unlike my show where we do kind of this Casey Case and Countdown, I mean, this yeah, isn't uh, just a, you know, to, to whatever. This is not uh, my favorite you know, on the same, sure. I'm going in, in, in order, uh, closest from oldest to newest. Uh, okay. so, and, and really, I think with horror, I mean, you know, that's all, you know, you do you, it's totally cool. Uh, for me, it's, it all just depends what kind of mood you're in, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. you might be in a bad movie mood. So you watch something like squirm or you might be in kind of a sadistic mood. So you watch, uh, you know, deranged or something like that or whatever it could be or castle freak. Um, this one, you know, I think you and I talked about when we talk about cult movies uh, on my show uh, that I love, I like, I, well, I really like David Lynch movies a lot. I can't even really say I love them just because sometimes I don't understand them and sometimes they're very unpleasant, but they're always, all of them, uh, always very fascinating to me because they kind of delve into the subconscious and the things that we dream of that when we wake up, we can't wait to, to get out of our heads. You know, sometimes when I have a bad, a really bad dream, a nightmare, that's just disturbing. I'll deliberately, I'll pick up the phone and I'm starting to look through, scroll through Facebook for the silliest, happiest stuff I can find just to sort of get this stuff out. I don't want those memories of the grotesque stuff that my subconscious can conjure very easily. Uh, apparently. So with that preamble, um, I, I, I want to talk about a movie that came out in 2021 and it's called Mad God. And it's not a traditional horror movie. There's no real narrative to it. It's about an hour and a half, I think. And it is, uh, the, the filmmaker is an Academy Award winning effects specialist named Phil Tippett. And his specialty has always really been stop motion animation. He did the effects for Robocop, the Ed 209. That was Phil Tippett's work. And I think at around that time and around his work on Robocop, he, he came up with this idea of, he just had this series, I believe, of drawings and sketches of this strange sort of uh, apocalyptic nightmare hellscape world. Um, and, and, Nobody was really human. There's sort of a human-like main character called the Assassin, uh, who's this tall, sort of shadowy figure and sort of like a World War One type helmet and gas mask. And it is just a series of these very strange and disturbing vignettes that connect as the Assassin journeys down. He, he's in a diving bell. And he descends into this world where everything's dark and there's creatures everywhere with multiple mouths and arms and dripping goo and stepping on things and making them squish mysterious liquid. And the soundtrack is full of odd, odd sounds and repetitive ticking sounds. He's carrying in his suitcase 
a time bomb that he has some apparent mission to set off at a specific place. And watching it is like I described to you earlier with my cult movie, uh, Eraserhead, watching Mad God is, first of all, it's, it's a labor of, of somebody who devoted 30 years of his life to making this film, this one film took Phil Tippett and a number of students from USC where he taught. They worked on this for 30 years to create a 90 minute completely stop motion film. And it is not one that would be playing on a double bill with anything Pixar uh, presented to you. It's not family friendly in the least Manson family, perhaps, but nobody else. Um, It's, nightmare fuel i like to say it is it is an oddity and it is fascinating and i am sometimes in the mood to go to those places it is scary it is and sometimes i want to be scared you know it's the reason you get on the roller coaster there's no good reason to get on a roller coaster there's no benefit to you to do that Um, you'll not be necessarily a better person for having gone seen a horror movie or, or mad God, but I'm admiring the craft the entire time of watching this. I love knowing that somebody had to move things one frame at a time. And there's a million things in the frame. There's all these little background things and there's smoke and there's, there's, there's rivers of mysterious goo. There's so many things to manipulate all at one time by these filmmaking filmmakers and this team and in the age of cgi how can you not marvel at that that it's not just green screen and 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 a few clicks of the mouse this is everything handcrafted little marionettes little motion figures and and these worlds and these environments that don't exist they all come from the imagination of this person who again devoted you know probably close to half of his life on this one thing and talk about underseen. I know that it premiered on the, what is the channel? This, uh, the, uh, the streaming service for horror movies. <sighs> there is a streaming famous streaming horror screen, maybe no, not scream, whatever it is. There's a, there's a, there is a streamer that premiered it and it was on that for a while. I think it's now on the regular, I'm sure there's a Blu-ray out there. And there's, uh, you know, Amazon and so forth. It's worth a watch if you are a person that wants to go deep, heavy into the subconscious and the horrors and the grotesqueries that those will provide uh, when you are asleep and sometimes want to wake up and get the hell out of there. Not a pleasant experience, but I guarantee you, if you start it, I don't think you'll turn it off. Uh, story or no story, it's never, ever boring. And it's certainly uh, one of a kind. There's no movie in the history of movies to my not. Maybe the closest are those, oh, shoot. There were there were these two brothers that used to make these sort of puppet movies that had this bizarre stuff too. So maybe it's not quite one of a kind, but there's there's you won't see anything like it in, for a long, 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 long time. Maybe not for another 30 years. So. Yeah, that's a that's a ringing endorsement there, my friend. So uh, yeah, 
That's I, I remember when that came out. I did not get around to seeing it. I think Shudder may be the Shudder. Uh, you are yeah, still so you are the human IMDb, my friend. <laughs> well, uh, I was just it was just happened to be on the top of my head. Uh yeah, I made a mental note to see that and it just you know, things get away from you. It was just it unintentional. And so uh that is another one I'm gonna have to come back to that one. I'm gonna circle back to that and I'm gonna make a note of it because you have hey, really I'm, I'm curious. sold it well. Yeah, I'm curious about something, by the way. Have, yeah. have you ever seen those lists of like a thousand and one movies to watch before you die? Yeah, I've got the book. I keep it in my restroom, actually. So you, uh, <laughs> too do much you information. Have you kept track of how many you've watched out of those thousand and one? Uh, quite a few. I don't know, have an actual number, but there's there is a good chunk of them, I would say. Yeah, I'm up. So, to, I'm, up, uh, I'm, up I'm up. I personally am up to six hundred and twenty-one. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, but I bet you, I bet if you actually took the time and, uh, and were competitive or whatever, you could, you, I bet, I bet you'd win. I bet you'd have more than me. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the, um, the encouragement there. But yeah, I, I need to, uh, to get in there, just really dig in and see how many I actually have seen, because that would, that would be a, an interesting, uh, thing to start taking a tally on. Well, well, uh, and I'm like yourself. I uh, these really aren't. You know, I'm not trying to say the one's better than the other, um, so to speak. Yeah. But uh, these are just five films that I think more people should see that have a horror bend or, or kind of horror genre related or whatever. Huh. And, Listen, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're performing a mitzvah. You know, you you are you are providing a service to the public. It's like, why just rent? Oh, let's do you want to see Nightmare on Elm Street one, two or three? Well, you know, you've seen those already a lot. You know, do you even even a great movie like Jaws? You've seen that, you know, yeah. Psycho. you've seen it. Why not mm -hmm. go crazy? Why not take a chance? You know, even if you wind up hating it, at least you can go, you know what? I, I, I gave it a shot. You know, that's uh, right. That's right. Good point. Castle Freak, well, not to my taste, but I, by God, I sat through this thing and uh, I'll have something to tell people the next day at work <laughs> rather than, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, we watched Nightmare on Elm Street part three again, you know, so uh, yeah, don't be boring, time. you know, don't be boring, yeah. be, be exciting like Adam. Be <laughs> <laughs> well, this last one, uh, and I have beat, I have been beating the drum for this one for a long time. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and say that there is a podcast. I was a guest on another podcast, The Culture Cast, uh, hosted by my friend uh, Chris Stashew. Uh, he invites me on his show occasionally, and he will usually let me pick a movie to discuss because he's a lot younger than me, and there's a lot of these films he has not seen, but he's very curious, and he wants to see these films and have an excuse to see them. And so he, uh, back in the spring, he had asked me to pick a horror film which I did. And he said, we'll post this around Halloween. So here we are six months later, he just posted it last week. So there's a whole 90 minute uh, podcast out there of me talking about nothing but this film. So I don't want to belabor the point. Uh, but the other from 1972, uh, which was based on a novel by Tom Tryon, that is one of my, it's certainly one of my favorite films of all time and certainly a great horror film and it is a, a film that i have really just tried so hard to get people to see this film over the years and i have never uh the, when i've gotten people to see it over the years people were have i don't think anybody's ever been disappointed i have 
run this movie for people probably for the last 35 years at least. And many, many times people have broken up into discussion groups when the film is over because it's that kind of film. You have to actually talk about it because there's so much to digest and it's a super intelligent film. Uh, I think a lot of films since then, I, I don't know, I think of like uh, The Sixth Sense has a lot of elements from this film. I don't know if M. Night Shyamalan had seen the other or if he would talk about it if he had. Uh, but I can see some similarities in the way that he reveals things in his in the sixth sense. But it, it's um, Tom Tryon was an actor. It's best to just give a quick uh, summation about Tom Tryon. He was he was an actor who uh, he was in uh, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, and he was in um, Texas John Slaughter, which was a TV show that was on the uh, it was a Disney television series I think that was uh, on one of the networks. I can't remember which. He was in Otto Priminger's uh, The Cardinal, and supposedly he. Uh, was gay and that didn't come out until after his passing but his homosexuality he was a was unfortunately a um uh, something that Otto Priminger took advantage of of that to give him a really hard time on the set of the cardinal and just really made his life incredibly miserable and to the point where he just couldn't do it anymore he said i can't be an actor anymore if this is what i have to endure and so he just reinvented himself and became a novelist and he went on talk shows in the, he wrote The Other in the late 60s. It was published, I think, in 1970, maybe 71. And it was around this time when we had Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby. There were a lot of horror novels who were, that were, that were selling well around that time. And so he got on these, all these talk shows and uh, basically promoted the heck out of it. And it sold extremely well. And Robert Mulligan, who had just directed, you know, previously To Kill a Mockingbird in 62, but then he had done Summer 42, which was a huge, huge success. He basically had the pick of the litter of any project that he wanted to do. And so the rights for The Other had come up and he decided to make a film out of The Other for 20th Century Fox. And they shot it in the uh, fall of 1971. It was released in May of 1972 to little to no fanfare. And uh, but over the years, it uh, debuted on CBS in April of 1975 on the CBS, uh, one of the network movie nights that they used to have when they would run uh, theatrical films on uh, for their regular programming for a national audience. And then it ran again in 1977. That's when I encountered it. I was in second grade and just. I used to go visit my grandparents on Friday nights, and I was over there uh, spending the night with them. And it just happened to be on. And my grandmother was in there with me. Uh, as it, and it's essentially about two boys. And there are all these, it takes place in 1930s Connecticut, everything. And it's it's like, it starts out like an episode of The Little House on the Prairie or The Waltons. And, it's, it, and that's the trick of the film because you're kind of lulled into the sense of complacency. And as the film goes on, gradually layer upon layer of menace is revealed to the point where it reaches a fever pitch during the last 15 minutes and your your jaw is just dropping you're, at what you're seeing hmm. and uh, the level of horror upon horror that's uh, being revealed here. And uh, you don't want to say too much about it. I'll just say that it's about these two boys who are 11, 12 years old, they're twins, and they just happen to be around when really bizarre occurrences are happening and they always seem to be around when some tragedy takes place in the summer of 1935 and there's a reason why they're around but i'm not going to say and it's okay. not as simple as it sounds and that's it so i'll leave it at that 
but the other, unfortunately, is a, as I said, a 20th Century Fox title. And you know what that means. Disney owns the rights to 20th Century Fox titles. And therefore, it is locked away in the Disney vault, as it were. And they have no uh, interest in streaming it. They have no interest in licensing this film for uh, another boutique label to release. Uh, so it's uh, the only way you can see it is to find it on YouTube, which I do think you can find it. And uh, it is well worth the time you will invest in it. I will tell you that in 1996, I believe it was, I found a film collector who had a 35 millimeter print of this film. I purchased it from him. And at the time I was a projectionist in a movie theater and I ran it for my coworkers one night oh, wow. uh, at midnight. I didn't, I just put a note uh -huh. by the time clock and I said, Hey guys, got a surprise movie for you. It's a horror film, 1972. It's an older film, but I want you to come in. And if you're interested in seeing a horror film from my personal collection. What year uh, was this? Lost... I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt. What year was this that you it showed 96, this? 96. 96. So the movie okay. was about 24 years old at this time. It's okay. the one and only time I've ever seen it in a theater is when I ran my own print. <laughs> uh -huh. How did your coworkers and respond? Because they loved it. They loved they it. They loved it. Yes. In fact, I think we finished it around two thirty in the morning or something like that, two o'clock. Uh -huh. We the, the place was closed. We had locked the doors, and we basically turned the popcorn poppers on, and just we were having our own little party there. You know, oh, sort of dispensers awesome. were were opened up, and we just you know, and they the boss had told me, do whatever you want to. It's fine. Once we shut down, it's yours. And so we awesome. just had a blast, and uh, I was just so I put the print together myself. I assembled it. I inspected it, um, and it was a little pinkish. It had the vinegar syndrome going, but I figured out that if you put a uh, a, a soda bottle, a green soda bottle, in front of the uh, projector, like in front of the uh, in front of the bulb, it takes out it, it restores Filtered. some of the, the color. Yeah. Oh. And so that's I was able to restore some of the color to the point where it didn't look too bad, and um, there were a couple of sprocket holes uh, that needed a little repair. I fixed those. And, uh, but, uh, basically it ran fine and, uh, it was so much fun watching those people. Cause I know the film, I've seen it many times and I know what's uh -huh. going to happen. And it was, uh, and so when the movie ended, one of my coworkers went out to the, uh, uh, to leave and my boss had just bought a brand new car. He was there that night too. And yeah, uh -huh. it was a brand new sports car and it was not a cheap one. I don't remember exactly what the make and model of it was, but anyway, one of the coworkers was so freaked out. He backed into my boss's car. Oh uh, my! So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. send the bill to Adam. It's his fault. Uh, right, right. So anyway, that's anyway. my story about the other. It's a personal story, and like I said, uh, you can really hear me do a deep dive on it on the Culture Cast. It's out there for anybody who wants to hear me jaw on for nearly ninety minutes about the film. But I would recommend don't listen to that podcast until after you've seen the film. Uh, there's also a making of documentary about the film. A good, a friend of mine that I've, somebody I've befriended on social media, his name's Adam Zanzi. He is a fan of the film as well. And he took it upon himself to visit the locations where it was shot. He uh, got in touch with everybody who's still alive that was in the film. And he made a 90 minute making of documentary. That is a video essay on YouTube. Uh, he, wow. uh, and he gives me a personal thanks at the end of the film. Uh, so, uh, you know, that was very nice of him to, to do because, uh, he had reached out to me knowing I was a big fan. And so he, he asked for, and I had interviewed, uh, Herman Raucher who wrote summer 42, who knew Robert Mulligan to a certain degree. And so he used some of my quotes 
from Herman Raucher uh, uh, in regards to Robert Mulligan in his documentary. So, uh, so well, yeah. anyway, that's my story about the other. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, you're listen, you're a film historian, you know. I mean, amateur or, or maybe not amateur, really, with your film writing for uh, for Focus, but you're a legitimate film historian. You're helping to carry on. Uh, one one person at a time the legacy of a lot of stuff here you know underseen underrated movies like the ones we're talking about today and you know i i think it'd be interesting for you to maybe do an episode of this in the future where you do maybe kind of explore some of the movies some of the great movies that we know exist but yet nobody can see like i know uh the original heartbreak kid the one that starred yep. Charles Grodin, I believe, is not available uh, for streaming correct. in any I, way. And that I, is I, right. Sure I have the a... original DVD. That's the only, I have yeah. the one from 20 years ago, and that's the only way you yeah. can see it. That's right. Yeah. Tulane, Tulane Blacktop. Uh, I think that uh, was uh, James Taylor uh, and, and I think Brian Wilson or one of the Wilsons, Dennis Wilson, in that. It was right. one Dennis, of those. Yeah. yeah. And, and Warren Oates. That, yeah. Warren Oates. And that's another one. You can't find it. But you know, like the the day the clown cried, the Jerry Lewis Holocaust movie. Somebody out there has it, you know, in, in a reel somewhere, and they and maybe they bring it around to their friends, like you did. And it was also a reason I was asking. By the way, I, you know, I was sorry to have interrupted you, but I I couldn't quite no, remember how um what what year your story was taking place with the movie theater and the private party, because you, you and I both know that it's it's hard these days to get younger audiences to accept not only genres of movies or, or just the idea of going to or seeing an old quote unquote old movie, but even the pacing is very often quite different uh, from the 1970s to what it is now. And and what it seems to me describing the other, not to be confused with the others with the Nicole Kidman movie, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. But, um, you know, it sounds like it's one of those ones, it's a slow build, but once, once it hits, boom, you know, it doesn't stop, which made me think of some of my favorites, uh, which aren't underseen or underrated, but two of my favorite all-time horror movies are, are the first Alien, you know, which is really a haunted house movie in space. The first half hour or four, even, I don't know how long it takes. It's uh, it's people sitting around waking, you know, they wake up, the crew wakes up, they're bitching and moaning about when are we getting back home? And you know, two guys are talking about, you know, union business and, you know, we want our shares and, and people are flirting a little bit with one another. It takes a while before we really get that first contact with the alien. But once we do, you know, thanks to Dan O'Bannon and some of the other people involved in making that movie, it just goes and goes and goes and keeps building momentum until it's just at a fever pitch. And that was also the case with a movie I saw during the pandemic. Uh, and I think a lot of people caught on to this one through Netflix called Train to Busan, South Korean oh, yeah. zombie flick. And the first half hour is, you know, you're meeting the characters. It's like one of those, those old 1970s disaster movies where you're meeting the characters, you're getting to know their stories, specifically this, this one man who's, a divorced father and he's bringing his little girl on the train to the city of Busan. And yeah, a zombie apocalypse occurs in that time. And when it does happen and when the zombies do start coming out, 
it's you've you've had enough time to know the people involved, not just the man and his daughter, but you know many of the main characters that we're going to meet on the train. And and P.S. Spoiler alert: Watch die, watch get eaten and bitten by zombies, and become zombies themselves. In that you know George Romero way of you get bit, you're now it's your turn to be a zombie. And if it weren't for that slower thirty minute opening. You know, who gives a crap of these people getting attacked? We see zombie movies all the time, but it's one of the most touching ones I, I, you know, I've ever seen. The very end, I still to this day cry in the last 15 minutes of Train to Busan because I, I had that buildup in the first 30. And that makes a huge difference. And, and I'm going to be old man yelling at the clouds here. I think a lot of younger viewers they don't want that pace. They want to know that in the opening, there's going to be an action sequence. And yeah, you got 10 minutes of dialogue and slow, you know, whatever, but, but you better have a, a, another scary action scene. Something big has to happen every 10 to 15, or they're going to start looking at their phones. And yes, I'm a cranky 59 year old man. I miss that pace. You know, I miss that that way, of, that means of storytelling. And I can only hope that maybe on Halloween, some people out there might listen to us or listen, listen to their friends and go like, well, I'm not going to just, you know, I don't need, we don't need to watch the reboot of Halloween, you know, because Halloween was great for all. I, I've heard the reboot is, is, is fine, but it's, you already know the story, you know, the killers. You know, I'm I'm really grateful. I said you're doing a mitzvah here to introduce people to all kinds of movies on your shows. And in this case, you know, maybe somebody out there will rent or stream something. Just take a chance because because it sounded interesting to them. And 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 yeah. maybe that maybe they'll see something that takes a little time to get moving, but once it does, bam, you're 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 gone for the rest of the movie. You're into it that's that's something I'd, I'd love for us each to be able to help preserve in some some little way if we can 